Well, apparently, this is my last chance at you. <laughs> and I want to make it good. I want to talk about the greatest thing in the world, the greatest thing in creation, and the greatest thing in the universe. And without this greatest thing in the universe, we are only half alive. Everything on the inside of the circle of redemptive love is heaven on earth. And everything on the outside of redemptive love is hell on earth. I always want the best, therefore, all I seek is redemptive love. Why take anything less than the best when you can have the best? As Brother Rufus Mosley used to say, redemptive love is perfect everything. And it is. But it's a question of how to obtain it. And usually it is not obtained by seeking it. It comes like a thief in the night under certain pressures and circumstances. And when it comes, it never fails to change that life it touches never fails, for love never fails. Everything else fails, but not love. Now it came to me through torture. I wasn't seeking it. I was an atheist, a non-believer, an agnostic, or whatever you want to call an unbeliever. And for many years my self-will had been saturated with an unbelievable hatred of everything and everybody, especially religion and religious people. I was against everything. And because I was against everything, I finally came to the climax of that against everything, and that climax took place in solitary confinement in the penitentiary. And it was a climax that put me under unusual torture. It was the intention of the prison official to kill me, or at least leave me almost dead. His demand was that deputy warden, I'll not go into detail, I've told the story so many times, and it's written in detail in two of my books, Release and Love Can Open Prison Doors. But this deputy warden was a, a prison man of the old school. We didn't have soft prisons in those days like we have now. They were not boarding houses. They were hard, they were tough. And the guards in those prisons were tough, they were mean. They were not just indifferent to prisoners, they hated them, had no use for them, expected nothing out of them and got very little out of them. 
And so I went into solitary confinement, a dank sort of a cell, seven by seven. And it was in the winter time, and it was dripping with icy water from frosty walls. There was an old pot-bellied stove down in the corridor, spewing up fumes and gas, everything up into the cells. The floor was slimy and wet. I had a pair of old overalls on and a jumper that had been that had been worn by others who had been in solitary confinement and it was stiff with their vomit and exercising of bodily functions in it and I had it on. For 12 hours a day I hung in the back of that cell with my arms in rings and balanced on my toes. And then I would be let down and collapse like an empty sack and be fed some bread and water. Fifteen days this went on in bread and water, and finally, one meal. Until my body wasted away. There was nothing left but the skeleton and the will to hate. Hate is a powerful force. It's love's next-door neighbor. Only two things in this world really work, hate and love. Hate will always work to destroy the hater, and love will always work to restore the lover. Never fails. Love never fails. And hate never fails. All I had to assimilate that pain was hate. I knew that if I could love that deputy warden enough, if I could hate him enough, I mean, then I could assimilate the pain that he was inflicting upon me. And the same thing happens in love. If you love enough, you can assimilate any kind of pain that is imposed upon you or inflicted upon you. And so it went until I was well nigh gone. And this deputy warden had told me when he put me in there that when you get ready to crawl to this door on your belly and beg and whine to me like a dog, I'll let you out, but not before. In the meantime, he said, I'll be sleeping in a nice warm bed. I'll be eating three meals a day. I will be with my family, whom I love very dearly. But I want you to know that I have no use for you, whatever. I've got no more use for you than I would have for a nant. When you get ready, Crawl to me and beg, I'll let you out. Otherwise, you will not go out. 
And my response, my hated response was to him, your lice and your rats will carry me out of here piece by piece. Before I ever crawl to you at your feet and beg you and whine like a dog. And so two wills were gripped in deadly combat, mine and his, and both were wills of hate. Into that torture and that hate, I'll not describe the scene, I'll simply say that my personal self-will broke under this terrible torture, wasting away of my body, almost a death-like state. And into that state, redemptive love was loosed in me, not by the deputy warden, not by my crawling to the door, not by anything that I had any knowledge of. <clears throat> it was loosed in me by Jesus, who is the manifestation on earth of redemptive love. When my self-will broke, redemptive love was loosed because there is nothing in us but redemptive love. We don't know it, but that's all that's in us. Every cell in our body is filled with redemptive love because God is love and God made every cell in our body. And when that redemptive love was loosed in me, <clears throat> I was so changed that I didn't want to get out of the dungeon. It was full of light. It was full of heavenly bliss. It was full of an indescribable ecstasy. It was literally heaven on earth. And the only thing that gave me any anxiety at all was that he would let me out, and that if he let me out, I would be separated from this glorious experience. And surely enough, after I had received <clears throat> that baptism of redemptive love, that deputy warden came with the doctor, and he said to the doctor, he's had enough. Take him to the hospital. And I was in the hospital and they treated me wonderfully. Brought me back to health and back to some weight. And from that moment on, my life began to change. Wherever the self-will breaks even as much as a crack, it's the crack of a hair. Redemptive love is set free in that person. And from that moment on, that life is either changed instantaneously or the change becomes a gradualism until it is well nigh mature and perfect. Another thing that brings us into a state where the self-will is broken, it cracks and collapses, is a tremendous overwhelming fear 
And sometimes when a person has reached a place in fear where it can no longer be tolerated as a burden, it seems as though Jesus will not let it go any farther. Not many people reach that great depth of fear and remain rational and sane. But if a person does reach that degree of fear and then is prompted to go to his pastor, perhaps, and in the pastor's study he tells him what he's afraid of, he might say, I don't know what it is I'm afraid of. I'm just afraid of fear. I can't figure it out. It's something psychic that I don't know anything about. There's nothing in particular that I can say that I'm afraid of. I'm just filled with fear. And the pastor will counsel with him. And after he gets through counseling, the pastor will say, may we pray? And they kneel down together. And in that prayer, the pastor will say something that will click like that. And the man's self-will will break. And the minute it breaks, redemptive love will be released within him. And he will be on the road to freedom. Soul sickness is a wonderful way <coughs> to reach a place where redemptive love can be released. I've been in the great evangelist meetings and marveled at what takes place there. These evangelists are anointed preachers. Sometimes there are thousands in the audience. And many of them have soul sickness. I don't know any kind of sickness that could be more terrible than a sick soul. It's almost unbearable. And that evangelist will come out and start quietly enough, perhaps. He may read a text out of the scripture, the Old or New Testament. And then he will begin to speak. And as he begins to speak, he becomes anointed in the Spirit. And as his talk goes on, he becomes more heavily anointed. And this anointing passes into tremendous inspiration. And the engrafted word of the Bible pours out over his lips just like a ceaseless flow, no effort at all. He knows he's under power. Finally, his message comes to an end, not that he ends it, it's ended for him. The anointing suddenly withdraws, the inspiration suddenly withdraws, the sermon is over. It comes back again. Now out of the anointing and out of the inspiration, he calmly and quietly offers an invitation 
to those in the congregation to come forward. And during this anointed sermon, those who have sick souls are reaching out because this evangelist is throwing out promise after promise, promise after promise of help. And every promise he throws out, the sick soul is encouraged. And he just keeps putting these promises out out of the Bible, the engrafted word of the Bible, usually the New Testament. And by the time that invitation comes, these sick souls are ready to go forward for this help. And they never fail to get it. They go forward and then the evangelist comes under heavy anointing again as he looks down with great compassion upon these people kneeling or standing, sometimes several hundred of them. He looks down upon them. He's filled with compassion. Redemptive love is released in him. And he prays. And out of that prayer, many, many of these sick souls are healed, released, redeemed, set free, and go back to their seats in great joy and great peace. Yes, it's released in many different ways. Many people have uh, redemptive love released into them through prolonged physical sickness. It's so prolonged that by and by they come to the place where they just don't care anymore. And they give up. And when they give up, the personal will cracks. The self-will receives a fissure, it opens a little bit. And wherever the self-will opens, even as much as a hair, the redemptive love of God flows in. And that excites, it excites and fuses with the redemptive love that's already in every cell in the human body. And it sets that sick person free, likely from the physical ailment, or at least set, sets in motion the healing. But it changes the person's personality. Life is changed for that person. Redemptive love never fails. All we have to do is to watch unobserved how it comes to people so that we ever get in the kind of receptive and responsive condition that is necessary to break the self-will uh, we too have this experience it never fails out in Arizona I wrote a, an account of a miracle Redemptive love. I have a file that's crowded with miracles of redemptive love. 
over in that Telegraph Canyon area of Phoenix, there was a man hiding behind a boulder, and he had a 30-30 rifle across the crook of his arm, and he was waiting there to kill a man. There was a trail coming down from up above and was going right by that rock. But some curious unknown sign painter had painted on the boulders all over the rocks around that area with black paint, God is love. And this man was behind this rock with his 30-30 rifle waiting to kill his enemy. Suspense grew. He couldn't get his eyes off that sign. It was right in front of him. He had crouched behind a rock that had this on it. And he couldn't help but look at it. And as the suspense grew, as he waited for his victim, his mind was wooed back into his childhood. And he remembered the love of his mother and thought about it. He remembered the love of his father, less demonstrative than, than the mother's love. But his father was a kindly man. And this got into his system, hardly without his knowing it. It was slowly and carefully and gingerly opening the self-will as he crouched there in suspense. By and by, he heard the footbeats of his enemy coming down the trail. And when the enemy got close enough, he drew a bead on him with his 30-30 rifle. And the enemy rode on, right in front of him, passed behind the rock and disappeared. When he told me about this experience, he said, I was just exactly like I was in a nightmare. I had no bone in that finger. I pulled and pulled my level best to kill that man. But he rode off unharmed. I couldn't do it. Redemptive love is the most powerful thing in the world when it's loosed in a person. There's a wonderful climax to that man's story, those two men, that enemy, and the one who wanted to kill him, buried the hatchet, fell on each other's shoulder, and confessed how glad they were that they were free from gunning for each other. They'd been gunning for each other for a long time. And they went into a car, a little car wrecking business together. And just taking the old cars and dumping them, but taking the machinery out of them and selling the parts. And they ran that thing into a great big business. I suppose they're still in it. 
wonderful friends, great love between them. What happened was that the man's self-will, as he got to thinking about his mother and his father and their love, his self-will just gradually separated a little bit, and into that flowed the redemptive love of Jesus, and that quickened the redemptive love that was already in him and released it, and he couldn't do a thing. Sometimes suffering brings a person into this tremendous experience. I remember a prison chaplain who preached to us for eight years about sin. And all those eight years he had never brought a single soul to Christ. A man would go up there not to hear him but to get out of their cells. The Sunday morning service didn't amount to anything. And he preached these flowery sermons. He was a southern orator. He had all the right gestures. But he was always looking down at us, the sinners. And he was up there, the sinless one. And we knew that he wasn't. <laughs> so we didn't have any confidence in him. We knew that he didn't love us. He was just an orator. The sermons were marvelous. We had any sense to know the literary value of them because I think he wrote them and committed them to memory. But <clears throat> no matter how flowery they were, they didn't, we didn't pay any attention to them because we didn't pay any attention to him. And he had some children, three children. We loved the children. Had two girls and a boy. And uh, he and his wife were spending everything they could rake and scrape to give, a, give them a musical education. And they used to, uh, they used to entertain us uh, on Sunday morning. And when they entertained us, we just all went. We all tried to get in. We just loved those kids. And we just had all kinds of good hopes for that. So the chapel was always full when he would announce that next Sunday the children will be here. They will entertain you. Well, we watched them grow up right in front of us. I saw them grow right up into the teens. Then tragedy struck. We used to make fun of that chaplain because he'd go around with his trousers patched and his shoes run over. We didn't actually know that he was spending every dime that he could rake and scrape together to see that those children had a musical education. And finally, one of them, this was back in the Roaring Twenties when Chicago was the most wicked city in all the world. It was under the complete dominion of Al Capone and the gangsters. And they were all in the money. 
had all kinds of businesses. They were bootleggers and distillers. They had all the prostitution, all the gambling. Practically every business in Chicago had to pay tribute to them in order to keep in business. And this naive chaplain, really a country boy, didn't know any better than to send his oldest daughter into that terrible city to get some finishing touches on her education. She had never been out of the country. The country was in her. Now even as green as grass, going into the subtlety and wickedness of that terrible city. And because of that, she made a bad contact with a, another girl in the city. And that contact led to a contact with one of these Al Capone mobsters who operated a magnificent flower shop. Had money, well-dressed, fine cars, everything. She had never had anything but scrimping. And being naive, she fell for it, and they dated. Nothing really ever happened that was bad. But this mobster was rubbed out there in a gun battle one day. And the next day, the newspapers carried the story. And in great black headlines, identified this chaplain's daughter with his mobster. And those papers came into the penitentiary there, and we saw it. He might have thought, surely he had every reason to think, now I've been preaching sin to these inmates for eight years. Now I wonder what they're thinking Probably they're thinking you've preached sin to us for eight years, and now your daughter is caught in a trap of sin, tangled up with a Chicago gangster. He might have been thinking that about us, but that wasn't what we were thinking. We were in great compassion for that girl, we understood. Understood just what she had been up against and just how easy it had been for her to get hooked. I don't think there was a critical thought in the minds of the 1,500 convicts in that place. There was only a great feeling of pity for that child. We knew the chaplain, of course, would be under a great pressure, and we wondered if he would resign. Or would he face us? What would he do? I was working in a garment shop upstairs, <coughs> and we had monitors at the window in front, facing the back door of the administration building, 
and we'd change off. And we were waiting to see if he was going to come down into the prison yard and face us face to face. One monitor would go back to his machine and another would take his place. Finally, one of them said he's coming. Now, he was a powerful man. Yeah, he was a real orator. He had a great, tremendous chest, straight as a ramrod. Marvelous black hair that he let grow down. A wonderful physique and a, a handsome face. He was a wonderful man. Physically speaking, he was just simply a Greek god. And we all rushed to the windows to watch him. The back gate opened, barred gate, and this broken man stepped out very slowly. He was leaning heavily upon the arm and shoulder of his runner. That great chest that he had preached such powerful sermons reverberated through that auditorium, was caved in. It looked, uh, it looked to us as though his shoulders had been broken down. We couldn't describe the look on his face. It was impossible. But it was a face that was in the extreme throes of an almost impossible suffering. And he was leaning heavily upon this young man, this inmate runner of his, and he took a hold of the rail. He had always bounced down those iron steps. And he took a hold of the rail, and he took it step by step, very slowly, and clutched the railing and hung on to his runner. And we watched. Finally, after a long time, he made it down those steps. He used to make it in a few seconds. Now it must have taken him, anyway, five minutes to go down those steps. We watched him leaning heavily on his runner go across the yard and disappear in the door leading up to his office and the library upstairs across the yard. It took him a long time to walk that rather short distance to the door leading up to his library, for he took it very slowly, and we noticed that his legs were almost like rubber. Sometimes he was inclined to stumble, and the runner would catch him and level him off. And we went back to our work when he disappeared. 
And then we wondered if he would really have the nerve to come into that chapel on Sunday and preach to us. We wondered if he possibly could face us eight years of preaching sin to us. Now could he come in with the whole state believing that his daughter was a sinner and the newspapers implying it that she was. Now could he come in and preach sin to us? What would he preach if he did preach? The chapel couldn't hold the men. They had to turn a third of the inmates away from there on Sunday morning. Everybody was up there that could get in there to see whether the chaplain would have the nerve and the courage and the fortitude and stamina to step through that door and go up to that pulpit. All eyes were turned to that door that he would come through. By and by there was a squeaking of chairs and shuffling of feet. And he was appearing. Every eye was turned, focused on that door. And he came in very slowly and gingerly, almost able hardly to walk. He had his arm around his runner over his shoulder and he was leaning heavily upon him and the two of them made their way to the platform and got up there and he sat down behind the pulpit something in a chair like this and the runner whispered to him then the orchestra played a piece and an inmate sang a solo and the runner whispered to him again apparently about a text and apparently he shook his head no so the runner stood up at the pulpit and read the text and stepped back and talked to him again in a whisper presumably asking him if he wanted to begin the meeting with prayer and he shook his head again and the runner got up and gave the prayer then he went back and spoke to him again this time he indicated a desire to get up to the pulpit and the runner helped him up and he clung to it and put all of his weight on his arms and he stood there for a long time and finally in a very husky voice he said I have nothing to say and he just stood there and his eyes were rimmed 
with red and moist with tears. I have nothing to say. And then finally he got this out. I have no sermon. But I will go down and stand on the floor where you are and not up here. And if any of you would like to come forward, I'd be glad to stand and put my hand on your head. Well, there was a great movement. I don't believe I'd ever seen in that chapel any such a, an experience, corporate experience, and I'd been there a long while. There was a great movement toward the aisles, and he was to learn how he had been baptized with love by 1,500 convicts, some outside of the chapel and the rest of them in the chapel. He was on their level. He was now down with the sinners. He was down with those who knew what suffering was. And they began to move to the aisle. And I imagine, I didn't count them, of course, but I imagine before it was over 300 men were on their knees in front of that platform. And those who could do it were pulling at his coat. Some were trying to touch him on the trouser legs. Others were down on their faces, right down at his feet. And still leaning on his runner, the runner, he guided him around, the runner guided him around through all these kneeling men. And he'd reach down and put his hand on their heads. I have no idea of knowing how many of them were opened up that day. But I would hazard a guess that at least two-thirds of those men, many of them hardened criminals, murderers and rape fiends and everything else. I imagine that two-thirds of them gave up themselves and the self-will that morning, and as he put his hand on their heads, it wasn't this man putting his hand on their heads. He was suffering. He was crucified with Christ. And it wasn't his hand, it was the hand of Jesus. And when he'd put his hand on their heads, the self-will would break in them. And when the self-will broke, the redemptive love was released in them. And I would say that two-thirds of them were set free. It's a powerful thing. It is really the greatest thing in the world that Henry Drummond spoke about. 
the greatest thing in creation. God is love. And since God made us, we're nothing but love. The only way we can avoid it is to want to avoid it. Our whole being, everything in us, our nervous system, our brain, our cells, our organs, are made, literally made and created out of the substance of redemptive love. We're simply baptized in it all the time and don't know it. The light shines in darkness and the darkness comprehends it not. We have got to work hard to keep from having this baptism of redemptive love. Someone asked Edison over in London, they were walking down the street Uh, he asked Edison if it wasn't very hard to succeed. And about that time, there was a beggar with a great big bundle of junk on his back. Came along, and Edison looked at him, and he said, It's a whole lot harder to fail. Yes, when this redemptive love, and it's, it's a matter of will. The will, the self-will has got to break. It can't get in in any other way. But it doesn't have to break much, just a little crack. It'll flow in wherever uh, we let it in, and as soon as it gets in, it quickens within us that which is already within. There's nothing in this room but redemptive love. The very air we breathe is redemptive love. Everything we eat is redemptive love because God made everything we eat and God is love. And so that would be the I've lost my watch. <laughs> Over time. You know, you could go on and on and on and on forever on this theme of redemptive love. I've seen it, I have so many examples of it written into me through the mail. I honestly believe that I have the greatest collection, the biggest collection of uh, testimonies and witnesses to the transforming power of redemptive love that now exists. Dr. Starbuck had a large collection of witnesses of all kinds of religious experiences that William James called upon when he wrote the varieties of religious experience. But these that I have are all centered in the theme of redemptive love and what it's done in their lives. It is an actual fact that wherever it has an opportunity to get through the human aura and touch the person in the right place, it will release that person because it will release that redemptive love within the person. And right here tonight, I'm not an evangelist. I don't give altar calls. 
I've often wanted to be an evangelist, but that's not my temperament. I have no constitution for it, nor have I any talent for it. The only thing that I really know about is that the thing that touched me and opened me and released me and changed me was the love of God. And every time I veer away from that, even in the slightest degree, and get into theology and get into all kinds of arguments about and contentions about doctrine and rituals and rites and this, that, and the other thing, Every time I get out into legalistic matters of religion, I'm rebuked. It's just as though God says, I didn't say, I didn't give you that. I gave you the best. Why are you fooling around with this? He rebukes me. Many times I've had to write a manuscript. I've had to revise it, make drafts of it as many as a dozen times because of the, the rebukes of God. All my manuscripts must somehow or other get identified with this experience that I had. If I get outside of that experience and outside of my own particular religious temperament, Everything fails, and I am rebuked of God himself. So the room is just filled with redemptive love. You're filled with redemptive love. I am filled with redemptive love. And if you would like to, I will not give you an invitation. But if you would like to and relax and would like to receive an anointing of this love. I would have a wonderful man come up here on the platform and I'll be sitting here by him or sitting behind him. Or if you would like to come up and stand up here or if you'd like to just lean over on your the seat ahead of you. I know that he would be anointed in the spirit and would pray with power. And there is no reason why you couldn't receive. It's promised. The Bible is full of such promises. They're all true. Jesus never told a lie never will, never can, never has. And so if you would like to <clears throat> receive, I'll have Paul come up and give himself over to the anointing of the Holy Spirit and pray that you receive. And if you would like to come up here to this little space, you could do that. All right, in your seat.
Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus Christ, you have made all that is, and you have promised us that when we waited upon you, you would be with us, that you left us to be with us. And wherever we waited upon you in faith, there you have been. We call out this night, O Lord, to all those who would offer themselves to you, pour out that spirit in fullness. Fill them with your love. Fill us with your spirit this night. Go in the power of Christ, in the love of Christ, in the spirit of Christ. Walk forth transformed, made new, and lifted up in his victory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the CFO Classics Library. If you would like to listen to more messages from the library, please visit our website at cfoclassicslibrary.org. Or if you would like more information about the camps farthest out or would like to find a camp near you, please visit their website at cfonorthamerica.org. <laughs>